Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Ten, nine, ignition sequence starts. On the 9th of November, 1967, the most powerful rocket the world has ever seen took off for the first time. We have liftoff. We have liftoff at 7 a.m. The Saturn V was taller than the Statue of Liberty, and it could send a whopping 140 tons into Earth orbit. Below, onlookers' jaws dropped at the sight. The tower My God, a building shaking here. A building shake. The Saturn V would go on to become a workhorse of NASA's Apollo program, launching more than a dozen astronauts to the moon. Its last flight was in 1973. Look at that rocket go into the clouds at 3,000 feet. Now, almost 50 years after that last Saturn V flight, an even bigger and more powerful rocket has emerged. Only it's not made by NASA, but by Elon Musk's SpaceX. Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist science correspondent and resident space cadet. I won't lie, this is an exciting moment for me. It's not often that we get to say this, but what we're covering today is actually rocket science. We'll be exploring the monstrously big, dirt-cheap Starship rocket. We'll dig into its proposed commercial applications and ponder how such a big machine might reimagine space exploration. We'll also look at the hurdles that still remain before this gigantic rocket is finally allowed to blast off from its launch site in Texas. All right, welcome. Welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to Starbase. At an event on the 10th of February, Elon Musk, the boss and founder of SpaceX, unveiled an assembled Starship so, rocket. Well, how do we do this? How do we uh, make life multiplanetary? How do we, what, what's the first step? And um, the essential technology, the, the holy grail breakthrough that's needed is a... a rapid and completely reusable rocket system. And a lot of people for the longest time thought this was not possible. Starship has been in testing for years, and in perhaps as soon as a couple of months' time, it'll attempt its first flight into orbit. Um, I feel, at this point, highly confident that we'll get to orbit this year. I think Starship's very exciting if they can make it work, and it's looking increasingly like they probably can. That's Tim Cross, The Economist's technology and society editor. He's here to guide me through the story of Starship. And I think that's for sort of two reasons. It's the biggest and most powerful rocket that's ever been built by quite some distance. And it's also expected to be the cheapest rocket that's ever built by quite some distance. 
The rocket presents a whole world of new possibilities. Starship is meant to give you a rocket that's big, that's very cheap, and that you can use again and again. So all these things we've been hearing about for 60 or 70 years, you know, orbital manufacturing, bases or colonies or whatever on Mars or the Moon, prospecting of asteroids, gigantic satellite constellations, all of this kind of stuff. If you talk to the space cadet crowd, they'll say something like Starship has always been the missing ingredient and now we finally have it, or we might soon have it. Elon Musk, the boss of SpaceX and the man who's pushing its development, his ultimate goal is he wants to build a colony on Mars because he thinks it's too risky having all the humans in the universe living on, on one planet. But one day we could make Mars a planet like Earth, and I think we should. So he's got this sort of massive ambition to use Starship to lug hundreds of thousands or even a million tons of stuff to Mars and eventually build a self-sustaining city there. If or when Mars colonisation happens is another story. But the Starship project recalls the golden era of space when scientists at NASA built a rocket to take humans beyond Earth orbit for the first time ever. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. In the 1960s, the world watched in awe as NASA unveiled its 111-metre-tall Saturn V rocket. Saturn V was the biggest rocket that has ever been built by NASA or basically anyone else in the world. Scott Manley is a physicist and software programmer. He also runs an extremely popular YouTube channel devoted to spaceflight and rocket science. It was built to realise Kennedy's vision of landing humans on the moon. It was almost 3,000 tonnes, and then that would ultimately send the command module and the lunar lander to the moon and to land. It needed to be that big because... To carry people to the moon, you needed to send a lot of mass to the moon, and that meant you needed to send a lot of mass to orbit. In July 1969, a Saturn V launched the astronauts of Apollo 11 on their historic mission to land on the moon. Ignition sequence start. Probably the most famous space flight ever. The surface appears to be uh, very, very fine grained as you get close to it. It's almost like a powder. Ground mass uh, is very fine. And now step off the lamina. That's one small step for man. One. More Saturn V rockets then went on to launch all of the remaining Apollo missions to the Moon. The last of these historic mega rockets was launched in 1973 without a crew. It sent America's first space station, Skylab, into low Earth orbit. The Skylab lifting off the pad now, moving up. Skylab has cleared the tower. Over its lifetime, 13 Saturn V rockets were launched. It was a highly successful, but also highly expensive rocket. Just to get into Earth orbit, 
The Saturn V had three stages. Each one contained fuel and a set of engines. Once each stage had done its job and was no longer needed, it was detached from the rest of the rocket. The first stage was about two and a half thousand tonnes. It was kerosene and liquid oxygen. That's the lowest section of the rocket, responsible for the initial liftoff. You had uh, about 400 tonnes in the second stage, it was mostly hydrogen. The first two stages would burn their engines until they were out of fuel and then separate from the rocket. Third stage was even smaller, but still hundreds of tonnes of hydrogen in there. And then you have these tiny, tiny spacecraft on the top that three people would be inside for over a week. Uh, very cramped conditions, but that's the kind of sacrifice you needed to do if you wanted to walk on the moon. Once the stages separated from the rocket, they'd freefall back down towards the Earth's surface. It was very hard to recover a stage which is hundreds of tons falling back from space. The funny thing is, they did actually think about this prospect. There were all sorts of ideas about giant parachutes and wings that would deploy. There was even a company called Hiller Aviation who thought that they could catch these thousand-ton boosters after they're empty of propellant using a helicopter. None of this came to pass, and most of the rocket was destroyed before it returned to Earth. The only thing that returned to Earth was the small crew capsule, the command module. Everything else was destroyed except for the descent module that was left sitting on the moon. That's one of the reasons why rockets are so expensive. There's a huge amount of waste and each new mission needs a new rocket. That shouldn't be a problem with Starship. The rocket has been designed to be completely reusable. Once the rocket's first stage has done its job of carrying the ship 100 kilometers or so from the ground, it'll break away from the rocket. Then its engines will reignite to slow the first stage's descent back down to Earth. Now, SpaceX has already made the first stage of its other rockets recoverable. The Falcon 9, for example, first managed it successfully in 2015. The company plans to catch Starship's first stage in midair with a frankly bonkers-sounding pair of robotic chopsticks. These will be attached to the launch tower from which the rocket took off. We'll believe it when we see it. So their first stage booster will go up. It will flip around and come back and land. The second stage will go to orbit. And then it will orbit the Earth for a while and then it'll come back and it's going to come back at orbital velocities. And that is much more difficult because hitting the atmosphere at this speed, the air just piles up and gets compressed against the side of the rocket. And it reaches temperatures of tens of thousands of degrees. So you have to protect your vehicle against that for the short time that it's doing this. And once it's through that, it has to fly like something that is under control, under aerodynamic control, so it can guide itself to its landing site. And finally, the second stage Starship performs what we call the flip maneuver or the belly flop transition and turns itself backwards and lands on the rockets.
it all sounds rather unbelievable. But SpaceX has tested this flipping manoeuvre already several times, although not after a descent from orbit. And we have ignition. Starship heading back to the landing zone. Reusability is one of the reasons why Starship promises to be so much cheaper than any of the other rockets in operation today. But it's not the only reason. There's also quite a lot of clever engineering applied to the rocket itself. The Economist's Tim Cross again. To take one example, when they were originally designing it, the original plan was to build it out of carbon fibre composites, which makes sense because they're both very strong and very light. But the more they sort of experimented with carbon fibre, the more they discovered that it has drawbacks as well. So it's a pain to work with and it's very, very expensive. So a couple of years ago, they ditched the carbon fibre idea entirely and the rocket's now made out of stainless steel, which is why it looks like something from the 1950s. And it's really cheap. You know, carbon fibre costs on the order of maybe $150 a kilogram, something like that. And steel you can have for a handful of dollars per kilogram. There's two advantages that stainless steel offer for Starship. That's rocket enthusiast Scott Manley again. First of all is the rapid uh, prototype ability, the ability to change things around very quickly and no two of the rockets they've built have been the same because they've been able to iterate every time. But also, when you're handling re-entry temperatures, stainless steel handles those high temperatures way better than carbon fibre composites or aluminium. And that gives them much more margin for both re-entry speeds and for the, the landing speeds. Now, you might think that stainless steel, well, that sounds a lot heavier than these super high-tech carbon fibre composites. And, of course, that's what all us rocket nerds said. But SpaceX engineers have actually pointed out that if you have a rocket that is full of liquid oxygen and liquid methane, then there are types of stainless steel that get stronger and stronger as you cool them down from room temperature to these cryogenic temperatures. And at the operating temperatures, some of these alloys that they're working with have comparable strength to mass ratio compared to carbon fibre composites, which is pretty good if they can pull that off. Which brings us to the kind of fuel that'll power Starship. Starship is using methane and liquid oxygen. So this is something that's been around for a long time but hasn't really flown. Previously, most of the rockets that have flown out of the US have either used kerosene and liquid oxygen, or RP1 is what we call it, or hydrogen. Using methane and liquid oxygen could allow astronauts to refuel on Mars. It's actually quite easy to manufacture methane if you can get a source of water and carbon dioxide. And on Mars, we know there's water and we know the atmosphere is carbon dioxide. Theoretically, this is possible. It's one of these things that you would, if you were doing a Mars mission, the case is that you would send your spacecraft on one cycle, it would sit there for two years, produce the propellant, and when you were absolutely sure you had enough for a return trip, then you would send people along. And that's a very common thing in science fiction and other stories. Like the, the book The Martian, that's the, the model they're following there. Another benefit of using this type of fuel is that methane produces very little soot. That helps to keep the engine's insides clean, so they can be used quickly again and again. This will have a huge impact on the cost of the rocket. 
in broad strokes, the Saturn V, which was the rocket that took the Apollo astronauts to the moon and is probably the sort of closest thing to Starship that's ever flown in terms of like size and power. Best guess is in today's money, that might have cost something in the neighborhood of a billion dollars of launch. Tim Cross. The existing rockets that we have today, things like the Ariane 5 or the um, Delta IV, they're much smaller and they cost a bit over 100 million, say, or at least they'll charge customers a bit over 100 million a launch. With Starship, SpaceX hopes to get down to single digit millions for a rocket that's bigger than anything that's ever gone before. So if they can make it work, you're looking at somewhere between 100 and 1,000 times cheaper than rockets we've had in the past. For a mission into low Earth orbit, for example, to launch satellites, that would make a big difference. The reality is that SpaceX could miss those targets and this still be half the current price. You know, they could be off by an order of magnitude and still be slashing that cost per kilogram to low Earth orbit and uh, in the future, way beyond. Simon Potter is head of investment and financial consulting at Bryce Tech, a firm of space industry analysts. He told me how the price of a Starship launch might compare to today's industry standard, SpaceX's Falcon 9 rocket. Current pricing for a Falcon 9 in terms of price per kilogram to low Earth orbit is around $2,800. If we're looking at targeting, as Elon has mentioned, ultimately $100 and less per kilogram to low Earth orbit. Starship's capabilities are no doubt impressive. But does anyone actually want such an enormous new rocket? There is some hope or expectation that new demand will come along just because of what the new art of the possible will be in an environment where Starship is operational. In the context of the work that we do on a day-to-day basis, speak to scientists, to researchers, to commercial operators who are all now in their own fields kind of reappraising what might be possible when there is essentially very cheap access to low Earth orbit in the kind of payload capacities that we're talking about. And we could think about that in the context of the design of the next generation of, of space telescopes. We can think about that in the in the design of very large satellites, infrastructure that can be carried to low Earth orbit in an environment where we're thinking about space-based solar power, where we're thinking about privately funded space stations. Starship's size and price will allow much larger and heavier objects to be launched into space. We could think about the development of the James Webb Space Telescope, and this is a an incredibly important piece of equipment that has been developed, a very expensive piece of equipment. And a lot of the design choices around that have been driven by how we get it into position. I think it is almost a certainty that the next very large space telescope gets designed in an entirely different way, potentially with a lot less complexity around its architecture because of what is now possible by the payload capacity that Starship offers and the design choices that then frees up for the items that are going inside of its fairing. One thing that is clear is that Starship will bolster a key SpaceX project, Starlink. This is a proposed constellation of tens of thousands of satellites all in low Earth orbit, designed to provide internet access across the world. 
In terms of its impact on Starlink, I think first and foremost, there is just the capacity that it provides. At the moment, Starlink is being launched on the Falcon 9 vehicles. The design of those Starlink satellites is evolving through time to the point where at the moment we're kind of averaging mid-40s to 50 Starlink satellites per launch. Uh, Elon has gone on record saying that in the first few Starship launches that that will likely move to around 100 Starlink satellites per launch. But theoretically, once it's fully operational, that can be in the hundreds. So in terms of kind of speed and cost of deployment of these constellations of very large satellites, there's obviously a massive acceleration there. But it's not just commercial. Starship could make a sizable impact on scientific research too. The opportunities that will be opened up by Starship for planetary science, for astrobiology, for human exploration in our solar system and beyond is beyond anything that we've ever had to think about before. So it's really outside of the box thinking for us, what kinds of missions could you fly on this vehicle? Jennifer Heldman is a planetary scientist at NASA, America's space agency. We spend a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of effort to miniaturize things. You want your instrument to be really small, right? Well, with Starship, it's like, well, you're not so constrained by mass and it's it's just not a world that we are accustomed to working in. But if you can get your brain to kind of shift over into that mentality, then you start thinking about things you can do for both enabling science and enabling human exploration. So you can really have some unique mission opportunities. One of those opportunities is the exploration of the red planet. So if we want to send humans to Mars, we want humans to have a sustained presence on Mars and live there long term. We can't be reliant on everything from Earth. We have to be able to live off the land on Mars. And the first step to being able to do that is using water ice as a resource. So what we need to do is something we call ISRU, in situ resource utilization. And so before we can use the resources, we have to characterize them and figure out where they are and what are they like and how are we going to extract them and how are we going to use them. So one thing you could do is on the first few uncrewed starships, you can send robotic scouts essentially to explore and drive around on the surface, lots of them, because you got a lot of payload capacity to measure where is the ice, how much is there, how deep is it, how much dirt is covering it, uh, what's it made of, are there different kinds of ices, are there chemicals or toxins in there that need to be cleaned out, figure out what's there, and then that informs the architecture for how we need to build our ISRU systems that we then fly to Mars um, in order to enable the humans to build up a base and to, and to be there. Dr. Heldman explained that this goes beyond Elon Musk's dream of colonizing Mars. I'm personally very excited about the outer solar system. What I'm most interested in is the question about life in our solar system and the universe in general. There are several very interesting moons at Jupiter and Saturn, which we believe have liquid water oceans underneath them. So salty water, probably, large quantities of water. And Enceladus, for example, has geysers essentially spewing water out um, from the surface.
And Europa has this ice shell and then this liquid water ocean under it as well. So it's a high priority in the world of astrobiology to investigate those worlds. They are hard to get to. With the mission capabilities we have now, it takes a long time to get there. It's hard to operate there. You can't send a lot of mass there. But with Starship, all of that changes. And so now suddenly we can start thinking you know, about sending this vehicle and with lots of life detection instruments. And it's exciting because for the first time in human history, literally, we have the scientific and technical ability to answer these most fundamental questions. Are we alone in the universe? The rocket has potential uses back down on Earth too, a subject that Shashank Joshi, the Economist's defense editor, knows only too well. America's armed forces have allies all across the world and sometimes very far away in Europe, in Asia, in places that take a long time to get to. And if a war breaks out, America has to support those allies and it has to get troops, equipment, ammunition, supplies, and it has to get them there fairly fast. So it uses ships, it uses planes, but this is a challenge. Ships can be attacked by submarines, planes can find difficulty in places to land. So the possibility of being able to get supplies or troops or military equipment of one sort or another thousands of miles across to the other side of the planet has obvious military applications for the US. The Starship should be able to take 30 minutes to go from New York to Paris to get across the Atlantic. A plane is going to take over seven hours to make that same distance. That sounds like a good idea, but it's not without its complications. Ships can dock at ports and they can dock at pretty much any port that has capacity. America's cargo planes are designed to be able to land in some pretty rugged circumstances, in some cases with really short runways or very dodgy airfields. Now, if a rocket needed a particularly well-prepared spot to land, I think that would be very constraining. Do they have the transport necessary to get the stuff from the rocket to where it needs to go? All of these logistical questions are pretty serious ones. Surveillance is a concern too. There are other things that people don't think about when they think about rockets versus planes. Planes fly through the atmosphere and they fly reasonably low. Radar can't see over the curvature of the Earth, so it can only see planes to a certain distance. Rockets go pretty high, you know, as, as you could imagine. And so a rocket arcing all the way up uh, into space or, or into the upper atmosphere is much more visible on radar than a relatively low-flying plane. And so you perhaps have issues around giving away your flights, giving away your resupply routes. Those kind of concerns about stealthiness, about how much you can hide, those will also be things weighing on the minds of military planners who are deciding on this plane versus rocket calculation. But these decisions are being calculated. There is some evidence that 
the American military is interested in these things. So, the, for example, the Air Force Research Laboratory has something called the Rocket Cargo Program. And they've been talking to lots of providers, uh, providers like SpaceX to talk about this ability to get cargo anywhere on the Earth. And I think the program is actually led by the US Space Force, which is the newest branch of the US Armed Forces. So they are keenly interested in these questions. And by the way, not just your traditional rocket landings. They're also interested in airdropping cargo from the rocket after it re-enters the atmosphere to be able to drop cargo to places where you might not be able to land a rocket or an aircraft. So there's a range of military options around this, but I would say they're all pretty embryonic at this stage. There's a long way to go before these ambitions become reality. Coming up, we'll explore how SpaceX has managed to get this far, and we'll also investigate the risks involved with a project like Starship. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. SpaceX first tried to launch a rocket in 2006. Since then, the company has launched around 150. But it hasn't always been plain sailing. Today, a spectacular SpaceX rocket explosion marked a huge failure for the private space industry. Rocket science isn't supposed to be easy. And just in case there's any doubt, here's proof that even the experts get it wrong sometimes. And so this is the SpaceX Falcon nine rocket uh, landing on a floating ocean barge in the Pacific Ocean yesterday. It successfully reached the destination. (gasps) That's got to be expensive. It broke one of its legs as it crashed onto the surface, causing it to tip over and explode into pieces. This rocket launched by Elon Musk's SpaceX failed to get off the ground today. Three, two, one, zero. SpaceX says a computer wasn't getting the right readings from one of the engines on the Falcon 9 rocket, causing an automatic shutdown. One of the fun things watching this beat is that you do get a sort of reasonably steady diet of rockets crashing and and blowing up in kind of spectacular ways. That's Tim Cross, the Economist, Technology and Society Editor. I think in a weird way, failure is sort of part of the recipe for success, or at least that's how SpaceX see it internally. There must also be an allowance for failure, um, because uh, if you're trying something new, uh, necessarily the, there's some chance it will not work. So if, if you punish people too much for failure, then they will respond accordingly, and the innovation you will get will be very incrementalist. Nobody's going to try anything bold for fear of getting fired or being, you know, uh, punished in some way. They're a very different company from a lot of the existing aerospace companies where there are two ways, I guess, you can do this. You can sit down with a piece of paper and design the rocket out to within an inch of its life, spend a huge amount of time on testing and theory and modeling and simulation and try and get it roughly right first time. Or you can put a design on paper, build a sort of simple, minimum viable version of it, 
fly it, see what happens. And if something goes wrong, that tells you where your design is lacking. And then you can sort of rapidly iterate on it. NASA, on the other hand, operates under a very different philosophy. It only launches things when it's as certain as it can be of success. It's been really exciting to watch the progress that SpaceX has been making and other commercial companies as well. NASA scientist Jennifer Heldman again. And by going into the private sector, I mean, they're able to run their programs as they wish. And so the rapid prototyping and testing, have it fail, learn from that and move on, seems to be working well for them. NASA has a pretty low risk tolerance. Um, we don't really operate in that mode quite as much. But SpaceX, you know, they have a vision. You know, they were founded to send humans to Mars. And so they have been working towards that goal. It's a very kind of startup style culture and maybe speaks to Elon Musk's original background in software development and dot-com startups. But it's very much the approach SpaceX takes that if things aren't failing, at least some of the time, it probably means they aren't trying hard enough. And I think as well, you know, the fact that SpaceX has been around for 20 years, has been able to come in and sort of disrupt this market, proves that it works. The Falcon 9, the existing much smaller rocket that they fly, that had its share of failures early on, particularly when, when they were learning to land the first stages back under their own power. There were any number of crashes and explosions there, but eventually they figured out how to do it. And now it's had, I think, well over 100 missions without a significant failure. It's become a very, very reliable rocket. So, Tim, there's no doubt that uh, the evidence shows that whatever method or whatever the secret source is, it seems to be going in the right direction. But I guess also it's easier for SpaceX with lots of money to do that. Why do you think it is that the traditional space agencies sort of shy away from Elon Musk's much more iterative sort of failure is good method of doing things? I'm going to sort of slightly disagree with you and say I, I almost think it works the other way around. And in its early days, SpaceX was a shoestring operation. They almost ran out of money when they were testing the Falcon 1, the very first rocket. And, and Musk has gone on the record and said, you know, the first three launches, I think it were, failed. And he said, you know, I was out of money at this point. If the fourth launch failed, then that was it. We were out of business. But the fourth launch succeeded. I think when you're trying to do something big on a tiny budget, you are almost automatically pushed down that, that sort of what's the minimum viable product we can get out the door line of thinking. And I think people will just work harder and they'll be more motivated if there's an idea that their jobs are at risk if things don't work properly. And as for the national space agencies, I think the fact that you're spending taxpayers' money rather than investors' money is sort of a big part of it. I think the fact that governments are doing it rather than, than private companies, they're more susceptible to pressure from their voters than private companies are because it's your own taxpayer dollars that you're watching literally go up in flames. And it's not as clear what the payoff is. I think Government space agencies also have to take account of politics. So a lot of the way NASA is structured only makes sense when you realise that the idea is not necessarily to run everything in the most efficient way possible. It's to spread the money around as many states as possible and keep as many senators happy as possible to ensure that all the future bills providing more funding are more likely to go through Congress. Private companies don't have to worry about that kind of political engineering. They can just worry about the engineering engineering. But there is something about SpaceX that does make it different to its commercial competitors. One interesting contrast here is the difference between SpaceX, which is run by Elon Musk, and Blue Origin, which is run by Jeff Bezos. SpaceX seems to have kept that culture that it had from its sort of early scrappy days where it had to pinch every penny and, and try and really think outside the box to make this work. Blue Origin has been funded pretty munificently, we think, by Jeff Bezos. And a lot of observers think that maybe 
that kind of comfortable position is one reason why it doesn't seem to have made progress quite as fast as SpaceX has. NASA has been developing its own jumbo-sized rocket called the Space Launch System, or SLS for short. But that has a lower capacity than Starship and so far is far more expensive. The best guess for what the SLS's launch cost might end up being is on the order of sort of one and a half or two billion dollars a launch. So you could get a hundred Starship launches or more for that same price and that's a pretty big gap to bridge. From any rational point of view, I think the closer Starship gets to success and the more and more it looks like something that might actually fly, the harder and harder it seems to justify the SLS. And it is interesting that NASA, for instance, they've kind of already taken one step in this direction and they've chosen Starship's upper stage to be the vehicle that actually lands astronauts back on the moon when and if that happens. The entire rest of that project called Artemis is built around the SLS. So you have to assume that at least some people in NASA are thinking, well, we could do so much more with this cheaper rocket. Is there really any point in carrying on? I just think that's going to be a very hard argument to win politically. The future looks promising for SpaceX's Starship, but the exact timeline for its first launch is yet to be determined. There are still a few bumps in the road ahead. The main thing we're waiting for is permission from regulators. So SpaceX needs permission to conduct this flight. The decision was originally scheduled to be made in December, and then the regulators got basically overwhelmed by tens of thousands of public comments, you know, some in favour, some against, and they've pushed that decision date back. So that's the sort of immediate barrier. There's some question about whether there are technical problems as well. So there was a leaked memo in November from SpaceX suggesting that there were quite serious problems with production of the engines. There's also this question of regulatory permission. That, that's a sort of interesting medium-term risk as well, because the facility that SpaceX is using at Boca Chica was given permission to operate on the understanding that it would be used for much smaller rockets than Starship. And, you know, these explosions that have been happening, they've scattered debris everywhere, the roads are closed reasonably often, and there are other sort of environmental regulators who are saying, well, hang on a second, this isn't really what we agreed to. And there's some suggestion that they might have to like revisit the permission to have that facility there in the first place. Now, if that happens, it could take several years to sort of work its way through the process. And SpaceX has said, well, if, if that happened, we probably have to move all the development work to Cape Canaveral. And that would mean a delay of many, many months. Whenever you launch something big like this, you absolutely should be concerned about environmental impact. Scott Manley again. If you take a look at a Falcon 9, I think we once figured out that the carbon emissions from a single flight of a Falcon 9 rocket, the smaller one that SpaceX uses, is comparable to 2% of the yearly carbon output of a 737 or Airbus A320. So if you have a rocket that's launching three times a day, as he said, that's a thousand flights per year. That's a carbon output of several hundred jets. So that's a fairly large airline equivalent to that. There is one bright side to this in that if you look at any vehicle like this, there is a fairly large environmental impact of just building it. And if you can have 100% reusability and not having all this stuff burn up in the atmosphere or crash into the ocean, that's definitely a win and you have to put that into the equations any of this technological activity, it is a balance against what we get from it as humanity and the invisible price that we pay for having it. Not only that, scientists across the board seem excited 
by how humanity might benefit from this rocket. I actually think it really is a radical thing if it works. 100% reusability has never been realized at low cost. And suddenly it means that if you can put 100 tons into low Earth orbit, you can put a lot of people into orbit, you can build very large space stations. It does make space tourism at relatively low costs actually viable. I think it will completely change the paradigm of humanity. NASA's Jennifer Heldman. We have never in the history of humanity, in the history of the Earth, in the four and a half billion years of the Earth, have we had the ability to go out and explore the solar system like this, with humans or with robots. And so the things that we will be able to do are just simply unprecedented. So I think this is one of the most fundamental game changers for the course of humanity that we have ever had in our history on this planet. Not to be hyperbolic, but it's a really big deal. I think it could herald a big change. The Economist's Tim Cross. There's a pretty good chance that SpaceX will make the engineering work. And then at that point, you're basically saying to the world's assembled scientists and engineers and businessmen and so on, what can you do if we cut the cost of getting to space 100 times and make it almost negligible? And it's hard to predict in advance what exactly that might do. You know, does it mean Mars colonies? Does it mean moon colonies? I don't know. But I think the lesson from history is when you have a massive change in what's possible like that, people will find something to do with it, even if we can't really predict exactly what it is. No one really knows how much demand there might be for Starship's massive capacity to get things into space. But the only way to find out is to get the rocket working. And despite the various challenges, engineering or environmental, it would take a brave person to bet against SpaceX. The company nearly went bust in 2008 after its first tiny Falcon 1 rocket failed. And it took a dozen attempts and multiple massive explosions before the company's engineers worked out how to land and reuse parts of the Falcon 9 rocket. Starship has been designed by those same engineers who seem to keep trying and trying until they make things work. That's worth remembering if you're unsure whether or not Starship, the biggest and cheapest rocket ever made by humans, will ever reach orbit. Thanks to Scott Manley, Jennifer Heldman, Simon Potter, and The Economist's Shashank Joshi and Tim Cross. To read Tim's full essay on Starship, subscribe to The Economist. Go to economist.com slash podcast offer for the best introductory offer. Thanks for listening. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin and the mixing and sound design is by Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Alok Jha. And firmly on the ground in London, but waiting for a starship to launch into orbit, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.